Before we go on and start this episode, we would like to take a moment to acknowledge and pay our respects to the unfortunate victims of the Lepke massacre on October 20, 2020, about a year ago. These young and brave folks were united in a single in an act of protesting police brutality. We wish peace to the families and friends of the bereaved. My sincere gratitude and respects uh, to the great Nigerians that lost their lives, um, you know, during the NSARS protests that happened last year. Um, it's 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 one of uh, immense uh, pain, as well as pride, knowing that uh, I have compatriots or we have compatriots uh, in Nigeria and in the diaspora who uh, fight for the same cause. Um, it's much love, um, much unity, and uh, we we'll always remember and appreciate, um, you know, everything they stood for and everything that uh, the rest of us stand for as we continue to push for a greater Nigeria. To the brave souls who lost their lives at the left Soviet across the country on October 20, 2020. Thank you for your sacrifice. You represent bravely. You represent the first time Nigeria was one Nigeria. May the label of our heroes past never be in vain. So for today's episode, as we've been doing with uh, other episodes in the series, we wanted to take a moment to kind of recap a conversation that we've had with Nagash, um, the economist that joined us to talk about, you know, Africans' economies, specific countries, how they're doing, and just the outlook for the future for um, Africa on an economic level. Um, to start off the conversation, one of the first questions that we asked um, our guests in the first half of our conversation with him is kind of what what are the things that you would be looking out um, for or president with on a, of an African country to say that they're successful? Um, and he kind of mentioned some things like, you know, um, how does the GDP look? What's what, how do you, the people trust uh, the leader and things like that? Um, do you both have any reflections um, based off that point of the conversation? I think I think there are lots of interesting things you said, a lot of which we're familiar with, but I think some things that were really interesting were like these notes about like, hey, you know, how is history taught in their schools, like how, you know, what does their social welfare look like that? Like things that generally don't feature into like ideas of what a good or well performing country looks like. Um and I think, you know, I think that reveals two things. The first is that some countries in Africa are likely doing much better than we think they are, just because like they, you know, they hold their own with regards to like their people being well educated, or you know, ch- you know, child mortality being very low, and things like that. But we we'll also find that some countries we f- we think are doing extremely well are not doing quite as well as we think. Um, so I found that particularly interesting uh, while we're discussing. <laughs> 
Yeah. I uh, I share I, I share your 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 reasoning, Makadia. Because um, you know when it comes to metrics for success for African uh, uh, nations, especially with regards to competition with Nagash, um, we still haven't landed on a model that can accurately you know reflect uh, the positioning um, of these states, um, not just in terms of how well they win, but how well they can perform and um, what we should expect of them um you know and this this models of course the question is who's designing the models and um you know what are the foundations for this design are they based off western models how western yeah. states be or are they you know tailored to the unique environments that we're in uh, within the continent so um i think that conversation with Nagash actually reflected a lot um in uh, in this space yeah yeah, good point. Um, another thing, another line of conversation that we had in Nagash was just um, women's participation in leadership. Um, Rwanda, being the, uh, the country that we use as a case study, has a great example of this. Women are involved um, in various levels of leadership, more so than a lot more a lot of other African countries. Um, and we spoke a little bit about how do we encourage that? How do we um, how do we make sure that that women's participation increases um, in leadership? Um, and something I found interesting that Engash spoke about is how that is more of a structural issue rather than just like a one-off or just encourage women to participate. Um, structural in terms of, you know, just having more increasing uh, the people's trust in their leaders, um, how the leader talks about their country in um, public forums and things like that. Um, what are you guys' thoughts? Do you do you agree with his sentiments? Do you think there could be other other ways that we can improve on this uh, metric, in a sense? I'll start off by saying uh, it, it's, it's about opportunities. Yes, yeah, so there's a structural issue there. Um, and the structural issue, of course, you know, I think stems from this patriarchal um, mindset that we have um, across the continent. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, that's an overgeneralization uh, because, you know, everyone gets passionate about their country. Everyone is upset about certain things. Everyone has ideas. Everyone wants to do something better. And people are capable of doing awesome things, men, women. Um, so that structural issue, of course, is, is a big one because we tend to look at women as individuals that run families. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to running a nation, you know, we confuse that as, a, as an abstract environment outside the realms of understanding of women, you know, because these leaders don't come from the streets. They come from families as well, you know, for the guy, you know, and if a woman can run a family, you know, I'm guessing she should have the opportunity to also have uh, uh, run the affairs of the state, you know, regardless of anything. So yes, there's a structural problem there where we have not provided more opportunities for for women uh, to get in there. Uh, but also, I think there is a mind shift that has to happen um, within each individual community, each individual society, how we train ourselves, what we know about ourselves, how we respond to our own challenges. Um, why, what makes having a man uh, such a special um, point of leadership? You know, is it, is it our religious backgrounds? Is it um, a colonial uh, 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 um, hangover? You know, or is it just the, the fact that, well, we've seen across the world, it's mostly been 
male dominated. So therefore, we think that's the templates, you know, just to use. Have we actually sat down to have a national consensus to say, listen, okay, we we want Nigeria to be better. And everybody, we're all one Nigeria, or we're all one Ghana, we're all one Somalia, whatever it is. And we want to put the best candidate forward, regardless of anything. And also, I hate that language, or I, I dislike the language of giving women opportunities. Giving, you know, you, you don't, if you don't, don't give me an opportunity, just get out of my way. That's the thing. We need to get out of the way. But I think that's another part of, of the conversation that I really liked when he said structure. You know, he said increasing trust and leadership. Leadership, that trust and leadership to me just means getting out of the way. You know, trusting the fact that you can get the job done, you're as passionate as I am, you have the qualifications, and we're all moving towards the same goal. So that's, that's one part to from it. Thank God, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. Thanks for sharing mine. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, while I do agree that there are some like structural like influences on the participation of women in leadership and in leadership roles. I think that there are some like just deep rooted mindsets as well um, across across the, uh, the, the continents that needs to be addressed to. Um, and those are often more, much harder to, 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 to solve, to fix, right? Like you can, you can put in structural pieces, of course, but if this one person believes this and this one person believes that, how do we move forward? Um, and so I think it was interesting to, to talk about, you know, trust and leadership and things like that. Um, and how they, how they speak about the country, but, you're not always you're not always interfacing with the highest form of leadership in different countries. You sometimes it's in the minute, sometimes it's the low, and across the board, there's a, a mindset shift. I feel that needs to happen uh, to encourage more women into leadership uh, mindsets of both men and women, uh, um, as well as to respect women once they get into these positions of power. I agree with both both the last you made about you know this being a significantly mindset driven issue. Um, at a hazard, at least my running hypothesis is that you know what what ends up being structural perspectives or structural opinions, but just structural situations in countries t- t- tend to be like aggregates of individual opinions across the country, right? So like Nigeria's government, for example, is largely patriarchal largely because the country itself is. And, and I think that you'll find that to be the trend across most countries that you see certain types of results. Um, and this is, you know, n- not just in Nigeria, but it's a worldwide problem, right? Most and most societies are so significantly you know, patriarchal um, 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 societies. Um, I, however, would love to discuss kind of just the structural consequence, right? It's like you obscuring or preventing or being in the way, as, as Adele had said, of, you know, of, of half of your intellectual capacity, your you know, labor force, your tax base, your educational, you know, <laughs> educate like you being in the way of that largest segment of your people, like cannot like it's almost like hamstringing yourself. Like I want to walk on one leg because of <laughs> because of my whatever driven beliefs they are. So, you know, I agree, you know, I think there's a, a wide scale mind shift shift that has to happen. I think there are structural consequences, but but I think one of the points Nagata was also making was like I think that there has to be a structural approach towards changing those mindsets, right? It's like it, 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 they have to like we have to make decisions as as you know people who can influence the culture and influence other people that we have to be strategic about teaching people better and giving women more and more access. 
um, that's that's my that's my two two to three cents on it. Yeah, thanks for sharing your thoughts, guys. Um, another point of conversation that we had was just you know COVID and the impact on. Um, the economies of different African countries. Um, Nagash mentioned, and I'm paraphrasing here, I don't remember the exact figure of the number of people that were previously not in, were not considered poor, not in the poverty range, joining uh, the poverty range across the continent. I think you mentioned 3.2 million people. Um, and I could be wrong, 3.2 or 32, I don't remember the exact figure. But either way, million is a large, a large number of people. Um, and so... <laughs> Can we go back from here? Can we do we just see decelerating into worse and worse, or do we see a path of a pathway out of this or to kind of like undo the effects of COVID in a sense? Um, one thing Nagash mentioned, and I think it has been a theme in a lot of our conversations, is the role of safety, social safety nets, and how that could help. But speaking more of the role of social safety nets or in other other possibilities of kind of reverting um, this impact of COVID on our continent and on uh, the amount of poor people that that we have across the continent. I, I'd like to believe, you know, let's knock on all the wood that's available that, you know, largely vaccination, vaccinations will help stem the tide of, of COVID and its variants. Um, and then generally, generally, we're just a better um, global economy or global community at managing or, or preventing pandemics moving forward. But like Nagashi's point was 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 you know quite a serious like you know 32 million people that's that's a huge number of people to be plunged into poverty of some sort or another. And um, I do think it can be reversed. Um, I think lots of countries are having challenges now with with large Swaths of people below the, you know, the, the what it, what may be considered the poverty line. I, I have opinions on that as well, but I think a lot of it is economic, right? Structural, like how are governments providing jobs? How are they providing access, right? Like the the back end of it is the social safety net, which is like, okay, if all those things don't work for a specific individual, what is there for to catch them? Like the fundamentals of job creation, economic growth, you know, that has to happen if you're expecting people. Like if that, the effect of that is that there will be less people in poverty or impoverished, right? So, so I think that you know, uh, what did Bill Clinton said is the, is the economy stupid? Like that's kind of the. Well, it was only partly right, but I'm going to paraphrase that and say, you know, at this point in time, you know, that's that's what needs to be, you know, invested in, like discussing with partners and at the globe, at the you know, continent-wide community, how do we, how do we fix the economies from of the ETO and every single one of these countries post-COVID? Um, I think, so, I think the COVID conversation, um, especially in the context of African nations, has been more of an excuse um, because this is a trajectory that, you know, the continent was going to go in regardless of COVID. You know, um, we elect governments because life happens. And we expect our governments to provide solution or solutions when life happens. Um, it could be COVID, it could be a terrorist attack, it could be you know plagues, famine, whatever it is, things will happen. And um, African governments, um, excuse me, world governments, but in this context is Africa, right? So African governments for the longest time um, have been reactionary. And even that reactionary behavior hasn't always been efficient. You know, um, we haven't been proactive. You know, 
when you have these conversations, okay, you know, what's the plan for the next four years? What's the plan for the next five years? What's the plan with regards to healthcare? What's the plan with regards to security? What's the plan with regards to social safety nets? All those things. There, there isn't a clear-cut, you know, strategy. We don't have a project we're working on. It's just vibes, you know. We're just doing things, you know. You know it's, it's true. We're just doing things, you know, based on the arguments that happen at that point in time, or APC, PDP, or uh, ANC, and this and that. But there isn't really a long-term project that, you know what, whoever comes into play is seeing the vision and they're continuing the vision. And I hate, I absolutely hate to use this example, but when you look at things like countries like, you know, Sweden, countries like uh, the uh, the UK, um, or should I say even America, um, you know, sorry, countries within the UK or America, they have a set goal. They have values that they measure their leaders with or by. You know, so when Trump comes into play and you're upset with Trump, you say, well, Trump is not meeting up to values A, B, and C. He's been divisive. He's been this, he's been that. You can measure that. But when we have, you know, African leadership misbehaving, what values do we measure them by? You know, what's the metric to gauge success? You know, it's and year after year after year, we've been plunging more and more into poverty. So COVID was an excuse. Excuse me for that, uh, because regardless of COVID, we have climate change happening. We have poor governance happening. And these things are actually other, other factors that will plunge people deeper into poverty. If COVID did not happen, I can almost guarantee you, we'll just be chilling on vibes and thinking things are okay until something else happens and we'll say, oh, it was this thing. It was that. It's, it, it's that thing. So I think there has to be that conversation whereby, okay, guys, let's put a pause to this. What exactly does it mean to be country A, country B. As a Rwandan, what does it mean to me? As a Nigerian, what does it mean to me? You know, as as, as a Cameroonian, what does it mean to me? And based on this meanings of who I am within my country, within the context of my country, this is how I dictate my leadership. This is how I choose who to lead me. So that when life does happen, it's easy to rally behind and support. It's easy to kind of, you know, uh, prepare for situations because we already understand our values. So I think COVID just played a part in exposing you know, the uh, lack of planning, lack of structure, lack of strategy of African leadership and life will happen again. And when life happens again, we'll just plunge in deeper and deeper and deeper. So you ask me, are we going to come out of this? I don't think we're going to come out of this because right now we're just reacting to COVID. We're not planning ahead. We're still reacting to COVID. Other nations are looking at, okay, COVID has happened. How do we react to this? And how do we ensure that for future problems, our healthcare system, you know, would would stand, or our, our economic model has to tweak a little bit to, to be more inclusive, things like that. But we we are not even having those conversations yet. We're still just reacting to COVID. So I don't think there's a way out um, in the long long term, unless of course something miraculous happens. Yeah, it's the black one, right? Um, but no, I, I think I I agree with you that really COVID just opened our yash in terms of um, how poor. Um, it can be being proactive about um, issues that may happen. Um, one point of conversation that we didn't have actually, or at least I don't think we had in our conversation with Nagash that I think that we could talk about here is just if we we say Africa, Africa, Africa continent, fifty four countries, but we don't always speak too much to like collaboration or like working together to address common issues across the continent um, with the different countries. Um, do 
do you guys think that there is a, 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 an, an opportunity there, an opportunity for African countries to say, okay, we have this common issue, we have common way of thinking, we have common similar cultures um, and things like that. So how do we work together? Um, are there examples that you can give that currently exist right now? Um, or do you think that there's opportunities there and how could these opportunities drive change in the long run? So my initial thought is that like, I don't think there's any uh, cohesive group of, of countries on, on earth that, is, that should be more incentivized to work together than you know, the folks on the African continent. Um, for a few reasons. One, because of how large our contiguous line mass is, how many benefits you will be in potential from each other to trade, to mutual, you know, skill sharing and things like that. But also because like the, the rest of the world is looking to exploit us, right? So like largely we're the only people we can trust <laughs> that that we don't want to exploit, you know, each other, at least at least hopefully we don't want to exploit each other. Um, and I think the opportunities, I think the models being discussed with the, like things like the FTCA, uh, you know, trade agreements across different countries that are working fairly effectively right now. Um, the question though is like, you know, do, does that collab, have we found ways to collaborate, to align the concept of collaborating across countries with the incentives for the leaders in those countries, right? So for, for some leaders in some countries, just quite frankly, right now, given the things they care about, the incentives simply aren't there for them to collaborate. You know, for example, you know, the, the president of one of the largest countries on, on or maybe the largest country flat population on the African continent. I'm not naming names, but I am. You know, it's, it's perhaps more concerned with a different set of things than, you know, bordering, you know, stretching the economy, which is why the borders were closed, which is why the country took the longest time to even sign on to the AFTC and then refused, pretty gladly refuses to, to, you know, enforce it. So, you know, a lot of it is just, you know, like fundamentally, like who are the people leading these countries and do the incentives for collaboration are, are you know, aligned. So what I predict will happen is that over the next 10 years, you see it happen in some places and let's in some places. The countries where it happens will start to thrive. The country where it doesn't will, will struggle and eventually hopefully realize the truth. But it's still because we lack institutions, it still depends very, very heavily on who is whoever is at the seat at the time. Um, perfect. Actually, so this, the, I, I was, I was, I was hoping someday we'll have this conversation. There's this book I just recently um, uh, uh, concluded. It's called Weak World by um, uh, Alex Heyman, I believe. Heyman? Um, Heyman, sorry. You know, the, the book was written in, in, in 1998 and was projecting, you know, global institutions, um, you know, in the 2050s or 2020s and whatnot. And it is very spot on. The question, of course, is not is not about people projecting things. It's about how, what's the best way to make a prediction. It is when you design the pathway. Um, when I look at African con uh, countries, for example, our commonalities of problems are you know there 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 are a lot from poverty, population overgrowth, corruption, colonial legacy, insecurity, just goes on. But within these commonalities, herein lies the challenges as well as the opportunities. So that is the problem. When you so let's start with the colonial affiliation. Um, a country like Cameroon, for example, or a country like uh, Nigeria versus a country like South Africa, 
yes, we both have colonial uh, uh, histories, uh, two different types of history. You know, yes, it was British, but one was British and uh, with Dutch and had some French influence there and had some other, some things happening in Germany and whatnot. So that was South Africa. Their affiliations with their colonial legacy dictates they want to go on a different path towards prosperity. The path Nigeria would want to go on isn't the same path South Africa would want to agree on. The path Rwanda is going on right now isn't the same path that Liberia even begins to understand or accept as a path to freedom. You know, so yes, we should be looking at conversations, dialogue, and borrowing ideas and tweaking our systems. That's that's very much needed. However, I think the biggest challenge we've had so far is we talk about common sense solutions to Africa, assuming that our leadership and the people at large have common sense. It's, 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 it's extremely painful because when, when we begin to look at this continent as a place where reason and rationality is not the, the headway, not the pathway, then we can begin to see that, okay, maybe the things that we're thinking are solutions actually won't work. There has to be a different way to address it, a different way that might be unpopular, but would actually uh, uh, bring fruits. I'll look at corruption, for example. Climate change is happening across the world. Everyone knows it's, it's, it's a fact now. Our world is changing before our eyes. And we're seeing the impact with things like migrants crisis. You know, check out Libya and people going to Europe. We're seeing it happening, of course, in parts of Nigeria, for example, in the northern parts, you know, with the herdsmen moving across different territories to find food for their cattle. And this is causing conflict. You know, land grab is increasing. You know, these... These conversations are not... So climate change has now brought about insecurity, has heightened insecurity. But we're talking about insecurity um, 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 along ethnic lines, not along intellectual lines of what's the actual cause of this discomfort or what is bringing together these worlds to collide. That is one problem. So how would you not expect a Nigeria that, for, for one, isn't taking climate change seriously? to sit down with a Rwanda that has a climate plan, that has banned um, uh, uh, nylon bags within the country, or an Ethiopia that is already addressing its dam issues, you know, uh, water dam issues with Egypt, because they're preparing for, for uh, water wars of the future coming up. We're on different plateaus of thinking. So yes, the opportunities for dialogue, but I also think these opportunities for dialogue, these differences are the main challenges we're facing. If you ask me, I think... I specifically believe that African states, we use this Africa map or Africa as one country, one continent, whatever, and it's very divisive thinking because we actually have more in common, you know, alongst or amongst amongst ourselves based on very narrow interests rather than on geographical ties. So Nigeria can have more in common with a Ghana and not have anything with Cameroon. This is nearby have nothing with Libya, have nothing with Liberia, have nothing with Tunisia. And likewise, you can have Tunisia having more in common with the uh, Maghrib and the Mashrik around that area and just forget that they're Africans. So I think we need to kind of redefine what African actually means. You know, is is Africa Africa because of these geographical lines? Is Africa Africa because of common problems? Is Africa Africa because of a perception of commonality? And when we now begin to sit down and have these conversations, I think it, it gets clearer what our priorities should be and who we should be talking to and who we should be having deals with. A, uh, and, and, an open trade agreement across Africa may benefit some and not benefit others. And that's a very fair conversation. But 
we shouldn't continue tagging this whole we are one continent we should group along and move along it doesn't work it's not going to work we have different interests we have different challenges and we have different futures coming up very very strong thoughts there and thank you for sharing that that was um very insightful i think for me and i think would be for our listeners too just a couple more questions left before we wrap up this episode uh one speaking to the role of the diaspora um one thing that we spoke about in our conversation with Nagash is that the african diaspora has grown so much in the last couple of years um and that really what that means is there's migration out of the, the african continent but is there any influence that we can have especially as a growing population uh, the three of us are diasporans ourselves is there any effects that we can have from the outside in on um the development of africa um especially on an economical level yes um do, do you mind if i if i quickly uh, I think yes, and um, yes because I mean the first evidence of the diaspora's um, um, influence comes with our culture, um, you know. And I like how you know when you kind of mentioned you know economic side of things, you know you you were very specific in it because when we look at influence, I think there are different areas within which our 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 use could be measured upon i start with culture um and and now we're tying to um the question of um, economic impact because now we're talking of the rise of afro beats we're talking about the rise of 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 of, of our movies nollywood the rise of you know all this thing you know the the, the east african um, um tech sector within diaspora but it's not because all of a sudden we've had more people from this country's move abroad they've always been there They've always, always, always been there. It's just a thing of, well, now we're having more spending power. Our purchasing power has increased drastically. That's why we can have our artists come to this part of the world and sell out stadiums. And we don't even give a damn, so excuse my language, if foreigners are coming to listen to the music. We can sell out our own people. You know, we can influence our own narrative. We can influence the way our, our culture goes. We put money back in the hands of our own people and hopefully... They can we can reinvest this thing in our own communities. So yes, we we play a huge role in this. And also, if you, when you look at things like you know on the political scene outside of your home country, our home countries, we're having more immigrants run for political positions. You know, it's not because oh the the whites or whatever you know people are there are, are inept, but it's showing the the rising demographic no demographic um, demographic shift. Sorry. I read somewhere uh, recently that by 2050, less than five percent, or sorry, less than five percent of global white population will come from North Africa. So North America, meaning when you add Canada and add America to it, less than five percent of that number would actually make up for the world's global um, white population. So there's a dwindling effect happening there. However, we're having more mayors coming from India, more mayors coming from Kenya, more more MPs coming from Nigeria. You know. It's it's becoming a big a big thing. Now, how do we now channel that into use for our communities? One, then the question, of course, two is: as a member of the diaspora, do I am I a hundred percent responsible for my home country, or do I now have two roles to play? One being my new place of abode, which is where I'm living right now in the diaspora, versus a place where I emigrated from. I left because conditions there were horrible. And there's also the drain that's happening. So we're facing a new colonial war where, you know, you're finding more Western countries opening up 
So there's a fortress world where they're closing up to refugees, they're closing up to, you know, to, um, to climate migrants and things like that. But they're also opening up to intellectuals, the best of the best. They are picking the best, you know, uh, crops or the, or the best minds to come into their countries, invest in them, hoping that they can stand them in good stead to fight their economic, socioeconomic wars with other countries. End of the day, Africa t- tends to lose out of this. We have, we had, I think three, four months ago, we had about a hundred plus doctors trying to run to Dubai. How many number? It was so much that the government had to just cancel the whole thing and say, listen, you guys sit back in your country. Last week, the Canadian government announced that Canada, Ontario specifically, is facing a labor shortage. So therefore, immigration would give special concessions to professionals from particular regions. Africa was one of them. So tell me why an African or Nigerian, a Ghanaian or whatever it is, who has a degree in tech or something, won't say, you know what, thank you, Jackpot. So when we say what what sort of diaspora here, I'm like, well, diaspora has a lot of influence to play, but also the mentality has now shifted because I'm in the diaspora and I have seen diaspora as a new country. It's a new identity. It's a new continent of its own. Do we now start throwing water back into the ocean by saying we want to fix Africa? Because even those in, within those places you want to fix are looking to leave. And the means for them to leave is getting easier and easier by the minute. You know, and the leadership there are not in the mood for collaboration to fix anything. So I think there comes a point where we make this rational decision. This conversation happens and say, what do I have to gain versus what do I have to lose? You know, I can spend all my money, my investment, my time, my resources in trying to build back Lagos State. But then there's a Tinubu father there. There's a there's a, an Obasanjo person there whose main focus is, I want this thing to remain the way it is. Now, how many people can I mobilize to attack or, or, or combat Tinubu? Do I even care for that? Or can I just take my money, invest it here, start businesses here in Canada, in America, and you know, just make money, settle down nicely, and then go back to Nigeria for, uh, what's, it called? what's the thing called in December? Uh, there's a word for December thing, we call it. It, it vibes December or something, 30 December. You know, go back for 30 December, heal, have fun, and come back here. So I think we, we, we should stop forcing this narrative of diaspora being responsible. Nobody in, in Nigeria or Ghana or whatever voted me as their leader. It is a willing, it's a thing of, of, of patriotism if I want to do it. But patriotism doesn't mean I was born within a country. Patriotism basically applies to a country that gave me an opportunity. So me being in Canada, for example, and me succeeding in Canada, well, if I'm a grateful person, a right-thinking person, Canada also has an argument to play in my conscience that, okay, listen, the money you're making right now, do you want to send everything back to Nigeria or do you want to invest some here? When you're going to have kids and, 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 and grow up and all that stuff, are you going to send them to Nigeria? Or would you want to grow up in a sin environment? You know, and I think that is the talk we should be having right now, where it is, is the diaspora a new state? Is it an emerging state of its own? An emerging economic powerhouse on its own? And if it is, then its influence, of course, supersedes that of just Africa. You cannot go on a global uh, stage. Now, we want to limit that to just an African continent. Yeah, no, I mean, you make fair points. Um, and one thing can be said for as you spend more time in the diaspora, your kind of ties start to drift a little bit. It's kind of like a boat floating out into water and going further and further away from the shore. 
um, in that sense. Um, I don't know if I would phrase it as if we have a responsibility or if we have kind of just the ties still remain. Um, and is do we do anything to to feed the ties or to 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 make sure that they stay for as long as they can, or do we all together just forgo it? Um, but in any case, I, I feel like that could be a conversation on its own. Um, and since we are running low on time here, we'll just go ahead and wrap up with that being the final question. Thank you for your time, Adela. Thank you listeners for listening to us. Please let us know. Um, if you have any thoughts, um, if you are Spotify listeners, there is now a way to directly engage with us after listening to the episodes on Spotify. Um, so please be sure to engage with us on the thoughts that we've shared on this episode and in the episodes that uh, in the conversation we had with Nagash in the last two episodes. Thank you again and look.